This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. This installment of the podcast is going to sound a bit different because we're just going to listen in on someone else's conversation for a change. In 2010, Rebecca Skloot published The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. This book told the story of Henrietta Lacks, whose tissue collected during her 1951 cervical cancer treatment went on to become the HeLa cell line. The HeLa cell line is very well known as the first human cells successfully cloned. This generated the oldest and most widely used cell line in history, the basis of research leading to over 11,000 patents, including things like the polio vaccine. But even though the HeLa cell line is well known, its origin was not. In a feat of science writing, Skloot brought this unknown story to life in a biography of Henrietta Lacks and a chronicle of the ethical violations woven into the collection and immortalizing of her cells. It is, to the audience of this podcast, a well-known story. So for this installment, we have a conversation between a representative of the NIH, a representative of Johns Hopkins, and three members of the Lacks family. During this conversation, they talk about what has happened since Glute's book was published. We get to hear what felt most important to the Lacks family as they decided what to do with genomic data from the HeLa cells. We hear about how the NIH found ways to respect this family and their contribution to science. This conversation is an important moment in ongoing debates about genomics, privacy, and respect for research participants. This dialogue is from a living room conversation titled An Update on the Henrietta Lacks Case, hosted by Alex Capron at the 2014 Advancing Ethical Research Conference. There are six different voices we are going to hear in this dialogue. Three members of the Henrietta Lacks family, David Lacks Jr., Veronica Spencer, and Jerry Lacks Way. Hosting the conversation is Alex Capron, university professor at the University of Southern California, where he occupies the Scott H. Vice Chair in Healthcare Law, Policy, and Ethics. We'll also hear Dr. Kathy Hudson, Deputy Director for Science Outreach and Policy at NIH, and Dr. Daniel Ford, David M. Levine Professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Director, Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. Can you say something about that, David or or Veronica, Jerry, about your side? You were sitting in this dinner tutorial with the head of the National Institutes of Health, who's also uh, a world-famous geneticist, talking to you, what did you understand he wanted to come out of that, and how did you feel that that went? Well, like I said, when we first learned about the genome, I guess none of us really knew exactly what the genome was, so the fact that uh, Dr. Collins and Dr. Hutchinson would come down and speak to us, we were like, wow, the people of the head of the NIH would come and talk to us. This must be really important. <laughs> You know, we was all fabgasted, so it was like we definitely wanted to come and see. And like Dr. Ford mentioned, he actually was giving us a lesson on that. He stood up in front of the white boy and said, this is what the genome is, and he said, like, this, um, this is how Henrietta Lacks sequence would be, and the children would share 50%, grandchildren would be 25, and it would dissipate as the generations go on. So we was getting a, like a crash course lesson in genomics. So 
it made us definitely feel a little bit better. And as the it, conversation is going on, I guess we established maybe, like, say, a little trust in the information. Mm-hmm. Like, a little trust between us, because he was, like, telling us all he can do and all he can't do and what everything means to us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what kinds of concerns, when you heard that it was published, there is a sense just of mm-hmm. kind of an invasion of privacy. Definitely. But were you, did you go into it thinking we're actually at risk Besides it being disrespectful because they hadn't asked, did you feel, well, there's something here that's dangerous? And what did Francis Collins say about that? Well, he had, um, actually he had equated to, I believe, as I sometimes say, the invention of the cell phone, how we had started off with the cell phone, when the first cell phone first came out with that big brick that I, and sometimes I lecture and talk about how Michael Douglas was on the um, beach in this movie called Wall Street. I was just speaking on that phone, and I was like, ooh, that's so cool. And now, you know, advanced 20 years later, and we had phones as powerful as the most, the most, one of the most powerful computers. And he said, that's where we are in genomics. Right now, we had that early stage where it's the brick stage. 20 years from now, we could be at the, you know, the supercomputer on the cell phone. So we really don't know what is at stake 20 years from now because we're in the early stages. So there's a possibility that, you know, our history is at risk. Like I said, we. All of us share part of um, Henrietta Lacks' genomic data. And so it, it's possible that information that could be harmful could come out with us. But mm-hmm. it is also a possibility that it won't. You just don't know. But right, right now we're at the early stage, and he just wanted to let us know that. Jerry, did you want to add something? No, I was just going to add with my, what my brother has stated um, when we met Francis, um, Dr. Francis Collin and Dr. Um, Kathy Hudson. It was a great honor because they wasn't talking above us, they was at the level where we would understand, and if it's something that we didn't understand, even if we asked several different ways, they would answer the questions. And it was, they actually gave us like um, brochures, pamphlets, information. They uh, met with us over, I think, three or four times. Then we met with um, a husband and wife, two um, geneticists. We met with them, and my brother, (laughs) he always talked about that as far as um, Oh, um, Your genes. Yeah. Yeah, um, um, I guess you know the different. When we met well with the gen, uh, genetic counselors, he would say they actually went over one of the genome sequence, and you say, okay, you see this reference uh, the unique eye pattern that Henrietta Lacks have. Uh, this um, s- section of it reference um, her, how she processed caffeine. And this sequence right here referenced, you know, she resistance to the ball gene. I was like, well, obviously, I didn't get that. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, um, they was just going, you know, breaking it down for us, and we thought that was very cool of them. Yeah, right. it was. Uh, it was very nice. Now, uh, Dr. Ford was saying that in any group, including your family, there would be differences of opinion. Did anyone go into this thinking, we just don't want this published? And we should be able to say, we're the heirs of Henrietta Lacks, these are her cells, and we don't give permission, we just don't want it out there. Was that a thought that some of you had going into this? Well, as I was saying to Dr. Ford, we're close to family, so, and we're also a family of many personalities. Um, <laughs> I came into the conversation last. My, the conversation had been occurring in the family and everyone had their opinion. And the biggest thing was we, no matter what goes on in the family, we try to hold on to each other and to make sure we're all safe and that whatever decisions we're making, how is it going to affect the next family member? 
So it was a lot of angry people in the beginning because we have people in the family that do not have health insurance. And we're like, is this grounds for denying them? Like, what does this genome open up for our family? What harmful factors do is at risk? So I came to the meeting because my grandfather asked me to come. And my grandfather's launched legs and he sent his son, he wrote a letter stating reasons why he felt like the genome should not be published or exposed to anyone else. And that in the beginning he did not want um, anything to do with that. But when I went in, it was at the time that Dr. Francis Collins was on the board and he was explaining some things to the family and I was just like, I Google him, he is so cool. So, I, I, and Jerry's like, and then Jerry's engaged, the rest of the family's engaged. So I'm like, you know, and when my uncle was upset, Ron Lex and the way he was expressing himself, and then I looked to my other family members because we're a family of numbers and majority rules. And I'm looking at my other family members and I still have to maintain a respect for them if no one else, and something told me sit down and listen because me and my grandfather, that's my partner in crime. <laughs> so after hearing everything out and being educated on the situation as a whole, not just things that we thought, because I believe that, you know, some of the preconceived ideas and notions that the family had was because we weren't educated on certain things and um, didn't take in consideration that if the cells advance history by 60 years, knowing the complete genome, how would that advance science and what it could do for our family? So we made a decision that if we move forward, the two legs were better than one, mm -hmm. which is how David and I came into play. So we both had the burden of going to talk to my granddad. And I remember talking to my granddad and David was just explaining his heart out. And my granddad was like, well, is this what you really think, David? He said, is this what you think? And he said, yeah, because da -da -da. And I'm talking to him. And when David left, he said, you know, he's a little crazy. He said, are you sure? <laughs> so I said... <laughs> I said, well, yeah, pop, pop, and I went over the facts and tried to explain some of the things that was explained to me, and my grandfather said, if you're going to be on board and you're going to take full responsibility for the decision you're making, then I'm going to back you. So my grandfather backed the whole decision, so the family went back. And we all, at that point, majority ruled, but we still allowed the matriarch of the family, being my grandfather, make that final decision so that he could be a part. Because if anyone was most affected, it was directly her children, and especially my grandfather, because he had more history with his mom. Mm. So he did approve, but because of some family members not allowing himself to be educated in the situation as a whole, you still have some anger. But we're working on that. Yeah. Dan, can you take up the story then? So the family 
gets to the point where the rejection of the genome publication is not the route they're going to take. Why, just fill us in scientifically, why is it so important to have this as a reference genome that's accessible? Well, the, the HeLa cell is still actively used in many thousands of laboratories around the world. And it's still being used to understand normal physiology. It's, uh, it's being used to insert viruses, to learn more about it. And uh, the, you know, as the world has become more molecular, you knew that more people, more labs were going to want to understand what's happening at, at the DNA or with the sequencing data. So it would be very hard scientifically to get the entire community to say, we're not going to try to understand the HeLa cell at the, uh, you know, at the DNA level. So I think that's where it was part of telling the family, well, we've got some options to semi-control, but the notion about saying no one is going to explore this seemed highly unlikely. So the best way to keep it from being done hither skitter by different labs in an uncontrolled way was to set up a control. And what is that control mechanism and how does that operate? Well, I think at this point, let, Kathy, why don't you talk about, uh, you know, how the control mechanism and how we, we got to that decision. Before we do that, can I back up for a second to the conversations? Because I think Veronica's um, conversation about the family's dynamic, I felt um, like I was uh, really honored to be a part of this conversation. And fa all families are complicated and have many different views, and the respect within the Lax family and their ability to work together was, to me, remarkable. I mean, my family can barely decide where we're going to go for dinner. And the, this family was making really fundamentally important decisions together. And it was, it was, frankly, it was breathtaking. The other thing I want to say about the conversations is that we were learning. So we were teaching, but we were also learning. We were learning what was important about privacy, what was important about family, what was important about revenues and intellectual property and uh, who got rich and why and what might happen next in that regard. And then um, most fundamentally, I think, we learned about the pride that members of the family have and the contribution that HeLa cells have made to science. And recently, when we had a workshop about whether we should modify the policy, Kimberly Lacks said, we want to know that HeLa cells are out there and working. And so there was this mix of, of insights that we got from the family that helped us try to frame options that might be workable. So I'll say something about the, those options. Yeah, so, so there were really the option of let the sequence be out there, freely accessible and publicly accessible databases so any scientist anywhere could get it at any time. Um, the counter option is take the sequences down don't have them available ever. And then the intermediate sequence, which is the, or intermediate option, which is the option that the family uh, and NIH ended up agreeing to, was to place the sequences in controlled access, called dbGaP database of genotypes and phenotypes, where researchers can apply to get access to that genome data, and those applications are reviewed by a data access committee or a slight variant thereof, and permission is granted. Um, provided that the investigator and the investigator's institutions agree to uphold a series of uh, protections 
and also uh, commit to reporting back what they learn, uh, committing to reporting if there's any intellectual property that arises from the research, and agree on any presentations or publications that come out of that research that they acknowledge Henrietta Lacks and the Lacks family. And so that's the process that's been put in place. The, the variant, we've had data access committees in the past. Um, the distinct difference of this data access committee is that it is usually they're internal to NIH. This is not. It is a um, subcommittee of Francis's most prominent advisory committee, advisory committee to the director. And this working group includes uh, four of us, David, Veronica, myself, and Ruth, and uh, is chaired by Renee Jenkins. Um, and so this group together reviews, along with some genomic scientists, reviews these applications, makes a decision of whether or not to grant access, and then monitors uh, that over time. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.